The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Raising the Bar for Patient Outcomes with Transcription Inhibition and Other New Options in the Treatment Arsenal for Small Cell Lung Cancer, Rationale, Mechanisms of Action, Latest Data, and Practicalities of Clinical Use in Oncology Practice. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DJB860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Dr. Jared Weiss, Associate Professor of Medicine and Section Chief of Thoracic and Head and Neck Oncology at the UNC Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Eric Singhi, Hematology Oncology Fellow Physician from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. I welcome you, the audience, to this peer review educational activity focused on important treatment advances in small cell lung cancer involving novel options in the second-line setting and relevant implications for clinical practice. Dr. Singhi, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Weiss. Really excited to be here. Let's start with the nature of small cells. So these are the small round blue cells that we all know from medical school. It's about 15% of lung cancer overall, a neuroendocrine cancer. Its prognosis is the poorest among all histological types of lung cancer, with an overall survival rate at five years of less than 10%, when accounting for all CR stage, stages combined. And histologically, the majority will express TTF1. The historic standard regimen was CAV. Um, we know our modern standard for cytotoxic is, pl cytotoxic is platinum etoposide, and uh, it's important to reflect historically that the evolution from, platinum, uh, from CAV to platinum etoposide was not so much based on a survival advantage, because unfortunately, as the curves show you at right, uh, there was no survival advantage, but rather uh, an improvement in toxicity uh, and ease of treatment delivery. Here we have a median PFS of 4.3 months and a survival uh, shy of nine months. So why have we had so few advances until very recently in small cell lung cancer? So for one thing, our patients are sick. While we uh, hopefully don't stigmatize our smoking uh, patients, uh, they do come with more com comorbidities. Smoking hurts the body. Um, we know that patients need to be rather fit, typically, to get on clinical trials. The clinical course of small cell is rather rapid. Often patients present inpatient because of central chest complications from the central vessels and the central airways, and that means that we often deliver cycle one inpatient, rendering patients ineligible for clinical trials. The standard chemotherapy of platinum etoposide is actually fairly easy to give in the community, so there's less of a drive to refer patients. Until recently, our understanding of the biology of small cell, or perhaps we should now say the small cell lung cancers, um, has been uh, relatively uh, limited, uh, and until recently, our models have also been rather limited. So let's start with a case. This case is that of a 65-year-old woman with a past history of hypertension and hyperlipidemia and a 60-pack year smoking history who presented to her primary care doc with three-month history of persistent cough and generalized fatigue. Her performance status was one. Chest x-ray showed a left upper lobe opacity, and follow-up CT showed a four-centimeter lobulated left upper lobe mass with associated hyaluronidopathy. She was referred for bronchoscopy, and the biopsy from the bronch revealed small cell lung cancer. This is fairly typical to get our small cell diagnoses through bronch because of the central nature of presentation. MRI of the brain is essential in small cell. It was done here and it was negative. PET is actually not mandatory, but typically performed in the US and in this case revealed multiple FGG hepatic metastases. She now presents to your medical oncology clinic to discuss further uh, management. So Dr. Singhi, what do you think of this case? Excellent. Thanks, Dr. Weiss, for bringing up this all-too-common patient case. This really brings us to a discussion about first-line therapy for extensive-stage small cell lung cancer, and really how that now includes combination chemoimmunotherapy as the new standard of care. Let's first talk a little bit about the rationale for investigating checkpoint blockade in the management of small cell lung cancer. It seems to make sense that small cell lung cancer would benefit from the addition of immunotherapy, as the disease itself harbors a high mutational load, as you mentioned, our patients most often have a heavy smoking history, and it's known that small cell lung cancer can coexist with perineoplastic phenomena, which is indicative of an activated immune system. 
So as you can see here, the Empower 133 trial was a randomized, double-blind phase three study that enrolled over 400 patients with extensive stage small cell lung cancer in the first line setting. These patients had to have measurable disease and a preserved ECOG performance status of zero to one. Patients with brain mets were eligible for the study. However, it's important to note that these brain mets had to have been treated and asymptomatic. Patients were then randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to receive induction treatment with carboplatin plus etoposide and the anti-PDL1 agent atezolizumab for four cycles, followed by atezolizumab maintenance. Or alternatively, they were randomized to the standard of care carboplatin plus etoposide plus placebo for four cycles, followed by placebo maintenance until disease progression. Co-primary endpoints for the study were overall survival and progression-free survival. As you can see here, there was a statistical progression-free survival benefit with the addition of pdl one inhibition with atezolizumab. Specifically, the median progression-free survival was 5.2 months with atezo compared to 4.3 months with placebo, with a hazard ratio of 0.77. I will note here that the divergence of the curves took several months, as you can see here, thus raising the question of the benefit of atezolizumab and if it's more related to the maintenance phase or if there's just a delayed onset to the benefits of immunotherapy that we're seeing. Median overall survival had a modest improvement to 12.3 months versus 10.3 months with a hazard ratio of 0.76 favoring the addition of atezolizumab as you can see with the curves here. With regards to safety, toxicity was overall not altered with the addition of atezolizumab. In fact, the occurrence of grade 3 or 4 events were relatively similar between the two groups. Regarding immune-related adverse events, they occurred in about 40% of patients receiving atezolizumab as compared to about a quarter of those patients that were enrolled in the placebo arm. And it's important to note that the median duration of treatment with atezolizumab was 4.7 months in this study. Moving on, here's the trial design of the Caspian study, which was also a phase three randomized study, although this was an open label study that enrolled over 800 patients with treatment naive extensive stage small cell lung cancer and a good performance status. Now in contrast to Empower 133, this study actually did allow for asymptomatic untreated brain meds as well. Patients were randomized into one of three arms to receive a toposide and a platinum-based drug, also known as EP, in combination with anti-PDL1 agent dervalumab for four cycles, followed by dervalumab maintenance, or patients were enrolled in the EP arm with dervalumab plus anti-CTLA4 agent tremulimumab for four cycles, followed by dervalumab maintenance, or to just EP alone for four up to six cycles, followed by optional prophylactic cranial radiation. Now, it's important to note that the platinum agent in this trial could be cisplatin or carboplatin, which was different from the Empower 133 study that only allowed for carboplatin. The primary endpoint was overall survival. Median progression-free survival was similar between the two arms at 5.1 months with dervalumab and 5.4 months without. As you can see here, the addition of anti-CTLA-4 therapy to dervalumab plus EP did not significantly improve outcomes. With regards to the primary endpoint of overall survival, the median overall survival was 13 months versus 10.5 months, which is very similar to what we saw in the Empower 133, and actually had a very similar hazard ratio of 0.75, favoring the addition of dervalumab. Thus, the data from Caspian seems to confirm that the story holds true, that the addition of anti-PDL1 therapy to chemotherapy in the frontline setting does indeed add an overall survival benefit for our patients in the frontline setting. And again, as you can see here, the addition of anti-CTLA-4 therapy to dervalumab plus chemotherapy did not improve outcomes and actually increased toxicity as I'll show on this next slide here. Taking a step back to look overall at how patients did with regards to safety, you can see here that overall the occurrence of high-grade adverse events was fairly similar between the derva plus chemo arm versus chemo alone. Not surprisingly, immune-related adverse events occurred more often with dervalumab at about 20%, then with chemotherapy alone at about 2.6%. Keeping in mind though that this was an open label study, thus likely making it easier for investigators to identify immune-related adverse events in patients that receive checkpoint blockade. So let's talk a little bit more about our case and what we would do for this patient. Um, she's now presenting with first-line therapy, or necessitating first-line therapy rather, for extensive stage small cell lung cancer. What would we consider for this patient? When we're reviewing the data and kind of in summary of what I've just discussed, in summary, the accepted standard of care for our first-line extensive stage small cell lung cancer patients now includes combination chemoimmunotherapy, either with the addition of atezolizumab or dervalumab. Empower 133 was the first study of systemic therapy in small cell lung cancer in over three decades to demonstrate a statistically significant OS benefit. Although a modest OS benefit, it's really important to note that it was without a significant increase in toxicity to our patients. 
And again, the Caspian trial really helped to confirm the story here that there is a statistical benefit to the addition of anti pd one agents to chemotherapy for extensive stage small cell lung cancer patients. All right, so let's revisit the case one more time. So our patient was successfully initiated on EP plus atezolizumab and transitioned to atezolizumab maintenance. Unfortunately, seven months later, on routine restaging scans, she had evidence of new osseous lesions, multiple osseous lesions. Her ECOG performance status was still preserved. So at this point, Dr. Wise, like, what would you recommend for our patient? Well, since you're the fellow, I'm going to actually kick that back to you. Okay, well, I'm happy to take it. So I think in this setting, you could really have a couple different options here. Um, but one thought that I had was maybe exposing this patient to a re-challenge of carboplatin and etoposide. The reason I mention that is really has to do with the time point that she's experiencing progression and recurrence of her disease, um, such that it's at seven months. And I think that defining time point is really important to keep in mind, because really here in the U.S., I would say that we consider the six-month time mark to be really the time point for displaying sensitive disease to platinum-based therapy. Um, however, I will mention that you know, our colleagues in Europe do define more of a sensitive time frame as around 90 days. Um, so what do you think of a platinum rechallenge? So a platinum rechallenge is uh, unambiguously a reasonable option here. Um, and it's in fact religion, I think, in the United States, that once you've hit that six-month mark, that platinum rechallenge is going to be the best thing to do. I think that comes in part because of an association between more aggressive chemo and more effective chemo um, amongst oncologists that, you know, restarting our most effective frontline regimen seems like a better thing to do. Certainly reasonable. Um, there's data for uh, rechallenge that are quite effective. But I think it's uh, what I would like to challenge is the idea that that's the only reasonable option here. Uh, yeah. If you look at data from Lurbanectidin, um, there the data was uh, divided out by 90-day chemo treatment-free interval, not six months. But that might make the point even more so here. Because if you look at that data, for the patients that were defined as platinum sensitive, or I kind of prefer chemo sensitive, uh, in that context by a chemo treatment free interval of at least 90 days, that response rate was 45%. And the duration of that response was 6.2 months, which really is on par with what we expect from platinum doublet. Now, of course, we have no comparative data at this time of rechallenge with platinum metoposide as compared to lurbanectidin either for toxicity or for any of the disease-related outcomes. And so I won't make any claims about which is better. But in terms of what's a viable, reasonable, uh, FDA-approved, NCCN-endorsed, and I would at least say Jared-endorsed um, option here, I'm with the NCCN in saying that, yes, carboplatin etoposide rechallenge is absolutely reasonable. But what I think is not always recognized is that it's not the only reasonable option. Um, Lurbanectidin is also quite reasonable here. So here's the data um, for platinum rechallenge. Now, this was done in a uh, pre-lurbanectidin era. This was uh, done uh, uh, some number of years ago. So again, we don't have the comparison to the uh, most commonly favored um, next-line agent probably in the U.S. now at this point. What we do have is what was the option at the time, topotecan, comparing uh, the platinum doublet rechallenge or topotecan. So this is a phase three trial in patients with sensitive small cell defined here as a relapse of at least 90 days after first line treatment. What you can see at left is why platinum etoposide rechallenge has become religion in the United States because it uh, resulted in a significantly longer PFS and a greater response rate as compared to oral topotecan. The most frequent grade three, four adverse events were neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, anemia, febrile neutropenia, and asthenia. And interestingly, not that different in the two arms. Um, uh, I think reinforcing some, the, some, uh, the distaste of many for topotecan, it's as bad as doublet chemotherapy, but not worse. Now, why, uh, why do I challenge this as religion? Even before lurbanectidin entered the scene, um, I would have challenged this as religion because if you look at right, survival was identical, right? It's almost as if they traced the curves comparing carboplatin and etoposide as compared to topotecan. Absolutely no improvement in survival for platinum doublet compared to topo. On the other hand, also no harm to toxicity. Um, so I think that uh, this, this justifies platinum etoposide um, as a reasonable option for therapy. In the real world case, this patient was rechallenged with carboplatin and etoposide. 
And as often happens in the real world, she had a response, and then bad things happened a short period later. In this real-world situation, those bad things was brain progression. She reported headaches, mild blurry vision. Her oncologist very appropriately recognized small cell as a disease that tends to metastasize to the brain, got a brain MRI, and unfortunately, it showed multiple intracranial metastases with associated mild to moderate vasogenic edema. The patient was started on steroids, which helps with the edema inflammatory component, but of course does nothing for the cancer. Patient felt a little bit better and went to radiation oncology where they were treated with whole brain radiotherapy. After the whole brain radiotherapy was completed and neurologic symptoms improved, the patients came back to medical oncology clinic to discuss further management. And that's our segue um, to our new option, um, lurbinectadin. Um, lurbinectadin was studied in a phase one and then basket phase two open label uh, trial in patients with both chemo treatment free interval of greater than and less than uh, 90 days. And that, um, that basket study is what led to accelerated approval of Lurby for second line extensive stage small cell in July of 2020. Um, overall response rate here was the primary objective, and the treatment was lurbinectadin monotherapy at a dose of 3.2 milligrams per meter squared as a one-hour IV infusion every three weeks. The patients had to have relapsed small cell with at least uh, with uh, less than or equal to two prior lines of chemotherapy um, and uh, did not include patients with active brain metastases. Lurbinectadin is similar to an agent you may know from sarcoma, trabectadin. It's a similar analog. It works by blocking transcription. It produces DNA double-stranded breaks, leading to apoptosis, and additionally has been shown to cause changes in the tumor microenvironment. As mentioned earlier, overall response rate was the primary objective of the study. When broken down by platinum sensitivity, for those with a prolonged treatment-free interval of at least, excuse me, of greater than 180 days, um, overall response in that population is about 60% by the investigators and 50% by independent assessment. Overall response rate is 35%, PFS 3.5 months, and median survival 9.3 months, with the more granular data set presented here, mostly for your reference. Moving forward to the graphical representation of this data, we see a response rate of 45% uh, percent in patients with platinum-sensitive uh, disease as defined by the 90-day treatment-free interval and a median duration of response of 6.2 months. In those with resistant disease, there's still disease activity as shown by the DOR plot with a median DOR of 4.7 months. And now I have to pause here and reflect that it had to be someone from Duke who generated the swimmer plots shown at right because the patients with the better prognosis the longer chemo treatment-free interval are represented uh, in that dark Duke blue, um, and the patients with that chemo treatment-free interval of less than 90 days with a worse prognosis are shown here in Carolina blue. And I also have to reflect that the problem with the virtual format here is I have no idea if anyone whatsoever is laughing at this. I'll just assume um, that you all are and that you're all Carolina fans. Either way, what you can see in the swimmer's plot is that there is activity in both populations superior in those with the longer chemo treatment-free interval. Now, no discussion of efficacy is complete without a discussion of safety. This is particularly true in the context of small cell where our drugs are more toxic than we would like. Consistent with other agents that are used to treat small cell lung cancer, dominant toxicity here is hematologic, anemia, leukopenia, neutropenia, and thrombocytopenia, with most of those events being lower grade. We also see chemo-like other adverse events, including fatigue and nausea, as shown at bottom, but again, these are relatively rare for high-grade events. Cross-trial comparison is absolutely uh, forbidden and yet omnipresent. Um, and I'm gonna do it anyway, despite it's being forbidden. I think I am with a majority in the US who look at this safety data set and even recognizing that it's not comparative, see it as relatively favorable as compared to Topotecan. And I think that that's what's led to such frequent adoption of the agent in the second line. 
Dr. Singhi, is the practice at MD Anderson, this perspective uh, similar at MD Anderson for the toxicity profile, or is there a different opinion on this? I would say it's very similar, Dr. Weiss. Um, you know, we have the exact same sort of take or, or standpoint of the safety with regards to the hematologic events that are occurring and, and sort of how we manage that with supportive care is, is going to be important. Now, this agent has been uh, evaluated in a randomized phase three uh, trial. In this case, uh, it was studied in combination with doxorubicin. This combination may seem odd to a clinician and clinical trialist at first glance. Doxorubicin is not a well-beloved uh, drug uh, in thoracic oncology, if not in cancer in general. And I would reflect that this was done because of preclinical data for synergy between the two agents. And this was randomized against dealer's choice of topotecan or CAV. Patients had small cell, at least one prior line of therapy with chemotherapy, additional biologic lines were allowed. Performance status of uh, zero, one, or two, um, and either measurable or non-measurable disease per resist 1.1. In terms of considering design here, I would note the dose difference here. Uh, with the addition of doxorubicin, the lurbinectin dose went down from 3.2 milligrams to two milligrams per meter squared. I would also note that this trial was a failure. There was, we know by press release, as all data seems to be released these days, that there was no improvement in survival in the Lurby doxorubicin arm as compared to the CAV or topotecan arm. Dr. Singhi, any thoughts on why we had such nice phase two basket data and then a failure to improve outcomes compared to standard treatment here? I think that's a really good question, and it actually may just hint to kind of, as you mentioned, the dosing difference in the lorbinectidin that we had included here in combination with doxorubicin. So like you said, uh, the FDA approval for lorbinectidin is really at a higher dose of 3.2 milligrams per meter squared as opposed to what they included in this study at 2 milligrams per meter squared. So really that just may hint that the activity of lorbinectidin is actually dose dependent and really is going to caution, I think, providers as well to, to drop that dose uh, in terms of what we see with efficacy for our patients. I think maximal supportive care should be used to try to avoid those dose reductions with this agent and try to make sure to maintain adequate exposure. Of course, lurbinectidin is a new agent and so very appropriately is being studied in a number of clinical trials that will better inform us how to use this agent and whether efficacy can be improved. Lurbinectidin is being studied in combination with the PD-1 inhibitor pembrolizumab. It is being studied with ipinevo. It is being studied with the PD-L1 inhibitor atezolizumab. It's being studied with the active cytotoxic agent arinotecan. And we have some completed trials. It's being studied in combination with cisplatin. Um, we await data on that. Same for the combination with gemcitabine and paclitaxel, uh, uh, paclitaxel bevacizumab, excuse me, separate trials there. Um, it is being studied in combination with uh, olaparib. Um, and on a personal note, I'll add that I'm in the final stages of protocol writing for a study of lorbinectidin plus, plus trilocyclib with the hope of not only improving the patient experience with the addition of trilocyclib, um, a la the data shown earlier, but also uh, to potentially maintain the dose intensity that seems to be important with lorbinectidin for maximal efficacy. This patient was ultimately initiated on next-line lorbinectidin. Um, parenthetically, that um, could have been done earlier. Um, treatment was complicated by grade 4 neutropenia. Treatment was held until this was improved. Then she was restarted on lorbinectidin at a reduced dose, something that in my practice I would have some anxiety about as, uh, because of that um, data on uh, AUC versus uh, response rate. Um, but the lorbinectidin did result in a four-month PFS. And at that point, the patient did still have a preserved uh, performance status, and her values were still oriented towards additional therapy. So Dr. Weiss, what would you recommend now for this patient? So there are multiple reasonable options for what, um, what to give this patient in the real world. Um, the only uh, approved standard option here would really be uh, topotecan. Correct. And I think that's a really good segue to get into and really bring into discussion the use of the topoisomerase 1 inhibitor topotecan. 
So TopoTCAN actually holds the longest approval from the FDA in this space for relapsed small cell lung cancer. However, despite its approval, the use of TopoTCAN has not been widely adopted in the second-line setting amongst physicians, possibly related to its potential concerns for toxicity, which we can review in just a bit. But here you can see that TopoTCAN can be administered in an oral or intravenous form on days 1 through 5 of a Q3 week schedule. The oral formulation was approved for patients with a chemotherapy-free interval of, a, of at least 45 days, whereas for the IV formulation, the chemotherapy-free interval was defined as a minimum of 60 days. Yeah, I think in the real world, there's a lot of passion about uh, TopoTCAN schedules. Uh, my, my opinion is it probably doesn't matter. Whatever schedule um, a doc has found most comfortable in their practice, least toxic, most practical, uh, this isn't something that I really push one schedule or, or another over. I think this is something where comfort is just fine. Sure. So let's review a little bit of the data behind TopoTCAN and its approval. Um, so for some historical context, on the right is data of IV TopoTCAN as compared to the CAV regimen composed of cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and then Christine. That illustrates that although TopoTCAN did not result in an improvement of survival as compared to CAV, there was a slower deterioration in quality of life, and TopoTCAN was easier to give. Ultimately, this is what led to the approval for patients who achieved a chemotherapy-free interval of at least 60 days. Then on your left, you can see data from the Phase 3 trial that compared best supportive care alone to supportive care with the addition of oral TopoTCAN in our patients with relapsed small cell lung cancer. And what they found was that the median survival was improved with TopoTCAN to 26 weeks versus 14 weeks. And importantly, patients on oral TopoTCAN had slower quality of life deterioration and greater symptom control. Now, of course, I think this is a good moment and opportunity to say that patient values will always trump all treatment decision-making factors, of course. However, if we are strictly going by the data here, there is data to support a proven benefit to help our small cell lung cancer patients live longer and have a slower quality of life deterioration with the addition of TopoTCAN, which is somewhat contrary to the public conversation that currently exists with this drug. Yeah, this is one of the most hated drugs, if not the most hated drug in thoracic oncology, because it's not remotely as effective as we'd like it to be, and it's a lot more toxic than we'd like it to be. So of course, we all want better, uh, newer drugs. Um, and in fact, that's the context into which lurbanectidine entered the small cell uh, scene. But once you've used up your platinum doublet in immunotherapy, once you've used up lurbanectidine, I think the conversation happening in the exam rooms across the country is, is TopoTCAN worth it? As you very wisely pointed out, patient values should trump all, but it's our job to educate those values with data translated into plain English. And this is where I think there's a little bit of a disconnect, as you said, between um, what the data says and what, how we're thinking about uh, TopoTCAN. I think the way we're often thinking about it and our patients are often thinking about it is that it doesn't do much for survival and it's going to harm quality of life in, in, in exchange for that small survival advantage. And I think what's sometimes missed in that conversation um, is that quality of life is driven not only by the side effects of our treatment, but also by whatever cancer-related suffering we're able to prevent. Um, and small cell here is a particularly brutal cancer. Even for lung cancer, small cell is a brutal cancer. And so whatever efficacy TopoTCAN has to reduce the suffering from cancer outweighs the toxicity it has. So I, I think it's uh, uh, best supportive care, otherwise known as hospice, is a very reasonable option at this point when you get to third line for the patient who wants it. But I do think we're, we're uh, doing our patients a disservice, a dishonest disservice, if we claim that quality of life is going to be better that way, because the data doesn't really quite say that. Right. I agree with you, Dr. Weiss. And I think kind of just as you mentioned, one of the considerations with regards to patient education and having that very open and honest conversation between a provider and the patient is talking about potential toxicities and safety concerns. Um, so as you alluded to, you know, the principal toxicities of therapy with TopoTCAN are going to be hematological. So with the development of leukopenia, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, followed by anemia leading the way. So really thinking about our patient who is now heavily pretreated and had problems with her counts, even with her last regimen, this can be a real treatment limiting barrier for our patients. So why is it important to think about this and what can potentially be done? Uh, well, I'll turn it back to you, Dr. Weiss, to kind of enlighten us on an important advancement. Yeah, thank you for that transition. I want to dwell on this slide just for a moment um, because it's something so obvious that we take it for granted, that the most common toxicity of cytotoxic chemo for small cell, if not in general in cancer, is hematologic as well as the downstream sequelae of the hematologic toxicity, uh, like, for example, fatigue. 
Um, I think we, I think we uh, take that for granted because for so many years, other than maybe neutropenia, we haven't had a lot that we could do about it. Um, but in the context that that's changed, um, this is worth uh, reflecting on again of whether we can make our patients' total quality of life, their experience better by protecting them some against the chemo. And of course, uh, if we couldn't do that, this wouldn't be a subject for us to talk about. And that's the scene that Trilisiclib enters. So this mechanism of action is probably familiar um, to any doc who's also treated breast cancer. Trilisiclib is an inhibitor of CDK4-6. In this case, administ administered intravenously to have a short half-life. It blocks the phosphorylation of the retinoblastoma protein, otherwise more commonly known as RB, in early G1, leading to cell cycle arrest in the G1 phase. So in much plainer English, it holds the bone marrow progenitors out of cycle while the chemo is washing by that could potentially poison them. It was first studied in small cell because small cell is obligate RB null. And what that means, again, in plainer English is that there is no hypothesis. You wouldn't expect this to affect the cancer at all for better or for worse. So it's not going to hold small cells out of cycle leading to a treatment advantage, a la breast cancer. It's also not going to protect them from the cytotoxic chemotherapy and the way that they're trying to uh, uh, protect the bone marrow. So small cell is sort of a purer place to study uh, myeloprotection benefit and the safest place to start. So this, uh, this new agent was studied in three randomized phase two studies. The first was carboplatin and etoposide plus or minus trilocyclin. While that study was being conducted, of course, pdl one inhibition became an important part of first-line standard of care, as we've discussed today. And so it was studied in the context of that triplet, plus or minus trilocyclin. And finally, um, topotecan plus or minus, um, which, uh, to evaluate the effects of trilocyclin on an already beaten up bone marrow. Of course, the carboatopo-atezo study is the most important for clinical practice. The primary endpoints here were median duration of grade 4 severe neutropenia in cycle 1 and patients with grade 4 severe neutropenia. You may ask why in cycle 1, um, and that was a, a practical design consideration. Patients were not allowed to receive pegfilgrastim or filgrastim in cycle 1 in order to see that effect, but in order to both protect patients and see the additive benefit of pegfilgrastim when needed, they were allowed in subsequent cycles. So it was important to look at both to understand um, the effect in the absence of pelagfigrastum and then while it was allowed. And you can see that both of these reached statistical significance. Below, I won't read them off for you, but you can see that for the other blood counts, their immediate effects or downstream sequelae uh, in terms of supportive care had trends towards improvement. Similar trends were seen in the other two studies, and therefore the three were put together in a pooled analysis to increase precision and statistical power. And basically, the same findings were found as were found in each of the individual studies, but in this case, all but platelet transfusion then reached statistical significance. No big surprise. Now, if this were just a numeric decrease um, in, uh, in count suppression or a decrease in adverse events, I don't think this data would have been that impactful uh, to me. Um, what, uh, what actually happened, though, was that trilocyclib actually had a benefit in health-related quality of life in addition to the reduced need for supportive care uh, interventions. For me, in my practice, fatigue is the effect that most impacts my patients and that I have the least ability to do anything about it. And so it was impactful for me personally to find in this data an improvement in patient-reported fatigue. Now, safety here is the opposite of most studies. Most of the time we add a novel agent to a standard backbone and we expect an improvement in PFS or OS. And then the question is, how much harm to toxicity do we have to pay in exchange for the novel agent? Here, toxicity is reduced. Total toxicity is notably better. And the question is the reverse. Did we harm uh, disease-related outcomes? Uh, and the data is rather reassuring. There's absolutely no impact on progression for your overall survival, as you would expect from the mechanism of action. In terms of what actually is worse, it's all a theme of irritative effects at the IV site. Um, these can be managed by slowing the infusion or rotating sites. For those of you who routinely use central access ports in your practice, the problem entirely goes away. And the only other thing that was different was alopecia, uh, which was roughly halved with the addition of trilocyclib um, kind of makes sense relative to the uh, mechanism of uh, action here. 
So in summary, we have a very clean progression of from mechanism of action to numeric count preservation to adverse event reduction, of course, hematologic adverse event reduction, to improved quality of life as reported by patients with no harm to PFS or OS, a reduction in high grade, which is to say grade three or four adverse events, and improvement in quality of life as reported by the patients. And so now uh, we'll move on to other second line uh, therapy options. We know that in practice, small cell chemo tends to work. And then unfortunately in the average patient, not last that long. And we've seen enough survival curves in this presentation to understand that survival is typically short. There is a phenomenon of the patient whose cancer is sensitive to just about any chemo you throw at them. Unfortunately, it's not our average patient, but we've all seen in practice that patient that responds to their doublet, now doublet plus pd one responds to second line, responds to third line. Um, and so for when that patient comes along, I think it's very important to know the other agents that are active in this space for serial monotherapy for those patients. And I think it's also important for those who prefer agents other than topotecan. Great. I think that's an excellent segue to start talking about some of the second-line options that are available for our patients in this setting and how it's really important to know about the other agents that exhibit some activity. We'll first start with uh, irinotecan, which is a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor. It works by preventing religation of the cleaved DNA strand, thus leading to DNA damage and cell death. Briefly, this here is data from a phase two trial of 15 patients from a single institution that had refractory or relapsed small cell lung cancer who were treated with arenatecan. 47% of the patients achieved a partial response with a median duration of response of about 58 days and a median overall survival of 187 days. Looking at the toxicities that are here on the right, um, you can see that the major toxicities were myelosuppression, predominantly leukopenia, followed by GI toxicity and then pulmonary toxicity. Paclitaxel is, of course, a well-known agent in the field of oncology. Specifically, it's an antimicrotubule agent that binds to microtubules, which promotes microtubule assembly and prevents disassembly. This inhibits cell replication by interfering with the late G2 mitotic phase. Paclitaxel has been studied in the setting of small cell lung cancer with different dosing regimens, as you can see here with 175 milligrams per meter squared on a Q3 week schedule, which is well known in non-small cell lung cancer management, and then also 80 milligrams per meter squared weekly for six weeks on an eight week cycle with response rates ranging from around 20% to up to and approaching 30% among the different subgroups that you can see here. I do think that it's next important to spend some time on temozolomide, which is another second line and beyond option for small cell lung cancer patients in the relapsed refractory setting. Um, it is a prodrug that rapidly converts to an active metabolite that alkylates and methylates DNA, thus damaging the DNA and resulting in apoptosis. It's really important to mention here that it does have significant penetration of the blood-brain barrier, which is important to keep in mind as our patients will often develop brain metastases throughout the course of their disease. This here is results from a phase two trial of temozolomide in patients with relapse-sensitive or refractory small cell lung cancer for which they actually used 60 days of a chemotherapy-free interval to define sensitive disease. Temozolomide was administered orally on days 1 through 21 of a 28-day cycle, dosed at 75 milligrams per meter squared. They did give undansetron as a pre-medication approximately 30 minutes prior to each dose. And as you can see from the beautiful water plot here on, on the right, uh, they were able to achieve 1 CR and 10 PRs um, in the patients that had sensitive disease. There were additionally two PRs seen in the refractory cohort. Taking a look at the curves that are shown here, it's really just showing us, as Dr. Weiss had mentioned very early on in the presentation, that as with other agents, patients that have platinum or chemotherapy-sensitive disease tended to do better and reap more benefits from therapies such as temozolomide. Alternatively, here is data from a trial of a five-day dosing regimen of temozolomide in patients with relapsed small cell lung cancer. So this study here showed that temozolomide, when dosed at 200 milligrams per meter squared daily for five days of a 28-day cycle, is tolerable and active in our patients. Specifically, there were no treatment-limiting prolonged cytopenias that were observed, which is important to keep in mind. The partial response rate was 12% with this dosing regimen, as compared to 20% with, with the full uh, daily dosing on a 28-day cycle, uh, as I'd shown earlier. Um, again, with the higher response rates observed in those patients who have sensitive disease. 
Let's now transition to thinking ahead about future directions for the management of small cell lung cancer. I'm really excited to get to talk about this because, you know, one of the major advances in the management of non-small cell lung cancer has been the identification of individual subtypes of disease based on known driver mutations that we've been able to discover over the years. And as a result, we've been able to achieve more of a personalized approach for our non-small cell lung cancer patients with the use of targeted therapies. Now, the question becomes, can we figure out a way to really translate such a targeted and personalized approach into the world of small cell lung cancer? I think that's going to be really important and very valuable for our patients. So actually, based on recent data, we are starting to see a clear signal that there are different subtypes of small cell lung cancer that can actually be defined based on differential expression of four key transcription regulators that are listed here. So that's going to be ASCL1, also known as ASH1, NeuroD1, YAP1, and POU2F3. Shown here is some really exciting work that has been done to define four individual and predominant small cell lung cancer subtypes based on the differential expression of key transcription regulators that I just detailed. At this point in time, although this work is incredibly important for research, it is not quite yet ready for clinical practice. However, I do hope that in the near future, this will really help us to determine which small cell lung cancer patient subtypes might benefit more from a particular class of therapy. Thinking about additional new treatment directions, shown here is work evaluating the potential role of PARP inhibition in combination with temozolomide. So on the left side of your screen is data from a combination of Olaparib with temozolomide, which appears to offer a very promising 42% response rate and overall survival of 8.5 months. Additionally, telozoparib, which is another PARP inhibitor in combination with temozolomide, is shown next just below and also appears to have activity in this setting. And then if you take a look on the right, it's really exciting data showing that Schlafen 11 expression in small cell lung cancer may actually serve as a candidate marker for sensitivity to DNA damaging agents such as PARP inhibitors. So that's some really exciting data that's actually now being translated into clinical trial and clinical trial design. So you can see here on this next slide um, that on the top left-hand corner of your screen, there's an ongoing phase two trial investigating the role of maintenance therapy with anti-PDL1 and tezolizumab in combination with telozoparib versus a tezolizumab maintenance alone for patients with Schlafen 11 positive small cell lung cancer. So we'll see how that reads out. And then on the bottom left of your screen are promising initial response rates from the ongoing resilient trial that's taking a look at liposomal irinotecan in this space. This is important to know about as it is yet another active drug or appears to be active in this space and may very well gain FDA approval down the road, but we'll have to wait to see. And with that, I'll turn it back to you, Dr. Wise, to really continue our conversation about future directions. So the final future direction that I want to address is preserved tumor-associated antigens. So in lung cancer in general, the overwhelming, um, the overwhelming majority of tumor-associated antigens, be they neoantigens or otherwise, are private and not shared. What that means is that if me, Dr. Singhi, um, and everyone listening to this lecture were to all develop lung cancer tomorrow, be it non-small or small cell, and you were to sequence our tumors, put it through bioinformatics, and look for our neoantigens, they would be mostly all different. And that's really made the development of uh, 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 targeted immunotherapy like vaccines or cellular therapeutics very challenging in both non-small cell and small cell. And what's exciting now is that some relatively preserved neoantigens, or at least common neoantigens, have been identified in small cell lung cancer. The furthest along is DLL3. Um, so DLL3 uh, is a target very commonly overexpressed in small cell lung cancer. Um, you may be familiar with the results of Rovat. Rovat was an antibody drug conjugate against this target. Um, in brief summary, it was active but very toxic with the toxicity, looking really chemo-like uh, based on the uh, toxin that was conjugated. But it um, that that while that that agent will never be approved, it gave an evidence of principle that targeting DLL3 could be uh, of value. And that principle has been taken forward in two efforts. One is a cellular therapeutics effort that we haven't heard much from in a while. The rumor mill um, says that that study uh, is on hold and that it probably um, won't move uh, forward uh, any further. Um, but the other is this antibody, uh, excuse me, this uh, bite. Um, uh, so a bite um, is a bispecific T cell engager. Um, you can think of it kind of uh, like an off-the-shelf cellular therapeutic. It brings the T-cell to the um, target uh, of interest, causing lysis and apoptosis. 
Um, the agent here, uh, AMG757. So uh, what you can see uh, at the uh, top right is a response rate of 20%. But I've spent some time uh, with this waterfall because of my interest here. And if you look at the higher doses, gives a hint that it's really probably more like 30%. And so I, my, my editorialized guess for you is that as we see more from this agent, that response rate is probably going to drift uh, upward. The median duration of response here was 8.7 months. There was a single event of death from uh, pneumonitis. There was a single grade three encephalopathy. Now in the cellular therapeutics world, we pay particular attention to both cytokine release syndrome and neurologic side effects. Um, here, the CRS was 44% at all grades, 2% grade three. But again, if you dig into the uh, exact nature of the events, um, they looked more like the things that we can learn to manage in our infusion room than like the big scary things seen with some cellular therapeutics products that require uh, inpatient management. So I'm actually really excited uh, to learn more about tarlatumab um, as the data evolves. I would also parenthetically note there's another target that I have high interest in that uh, also has a very high level of preservation in small cell GD2 um, and clinical trials um, are being planned uh, in cellular therapeutics to action GD2. So with those exciting future directions in mind, I'd like to refocus our attention on the armamentarium we have available to us in the moment in the clinics. And so with that, Dr. Singhi, um, do you have any key take-homes about our current armamentarium? Definitely. And I think kind of going back to the patient case that we followed throughout this presentation, we saw that for first-line extensive stage small cell lung cancer, really the new standard of care is combination chemoimmunotherapy. So adding either atezolizumab or dervalumab, both anti-PDL1 agents, to that backbone of the platinum and etoposide is going to be the accepted standard of care for our patients, as it does result in, yes, a modest overall survival benefit, but really without an increase in significant toxicity to our patients. I think you also mentioned very wisely, Dr. Weiss, considering the addition of trilocyclib to provide you know, sort of that support um, for myelosuppression and to really help target some of the symptoms that our patients really find have a big impact on their life with regards to quality of life. Um, so that is an important consideration to add for that first line extensive stage small cell lung cancer management. Um, I think moving forward with regards to what we do if our patients and when they relapse or have further progression of their disease, we talked about how it's important to consider the time point at which we're seeing their progression of disease. Um, so specifically here in the US, we use that six month time frame with regards to platinum sensitivity or chemotherapy sensitivity disease. That's an important consideration with thinking about, yes, maybe a rechallenge with carboplatin etoposide for our patients, or alternatively moving to lorbinectadin. Uh, what do you think, Dr. Weiss? I think they're both viable options. In the absence of comparative data, it's just clear that they're both very active. So for those who are very attached to carboplatin etoposide, nothing wrong with continuing to do that for those with the longer chemo treatment-free interval. For those who are more impressed by the lorbinectadin data, I think what's under-recognized is just how viable that option is, how good the, the data looked for those patients with the longer chemo treatment-free interval. Um, and I would further note that one thing we didn't touch upon, but that I do occasionally do in practice, is that whatever you don't do next, you can consider later. It's not a now or never kind of thing. So what I mean by that is that if you do uh, repeat the carboplatin and etoposide, you can use lorbinectin as a next line and vice versa. If you use, uh, I saw a case just on Tuesday where the patient had gotten lorbinectin in second line. And when that stopped working, the question was, well, what do we do now? Is there a clinical trial you have for this patient? Patient's values actually weren't really uh, in line with a clinical trial, um, but carbotopa rechallenge was still a viable option at, at that point. Not a lot of data to address that, but um, I do think it remains valid. I also think what's under-recognized um, as we hate topotecan, and I wouldn't claim to be a lover of topotecan, but I think it is a better agent than is sometimes recognized. Compared to best supportive care, we expect uh, a modest improvement in survival, but perhaps even more importantly, um, less deterioration in quality of life, which is, I would argue, the most important reason that we give systemic therapy for extensive stage small cell anyway. Um, Topo is a rough drug, but small cell is an even rougher uh, cancer. And so I think when we counsel our patients, one of my take-homes would be that in considering quality of life, not just in small cell, but any cancer, we never have the luxury of ignoring either the side effects of the drugs or the brutality 
of the cancer that we're trying to uh, prevent. Following, uh, following the use of these agents, there are a variety of agents that remain active that can be considered either in place of topotecan uh, or following it for the patients whose disease remains sensitive and whose values remain oriented in that direction. Temozolamide is particularly interesting in this space because of its brain penetration. Um, but I think we have a number of agents coming down the pike that are going to uh, uh, hopefully make that conversation a little less relevant over time. Most immediately, uh, my best guess is that the next agent we're gonna have a, in, approved in this space is liposomal arinotecan. Following that though, um, we may see PARP inhibition um, coming to the forefront for patients that are Schlafen 11 positive. You and I spoke a little bit about the transcription subtypes. Um, this is not pie in the sky scientific data. Um, the the bio, biologic themes are so different that I think in over maybe that five year time span, five year plus, I think we are gonna see selection of therapy or even uh, development of therapy based upon that. And personally, um, I'm incredibly enthusiastic about um, targeting um, tumor-associated antigens or neoantigens, be it with bites or cellular therapeutics. And I see DLL3 and GD2 as products, uh, as targets, excuse me, of high promise. I think once we really get that right, we might see more dramatic improvements in small cell. Yeah, I think this is a really exciting time to be in the medical oncology field and provide care for small cell lung cancer patients. Um, you know, with the introduction of, you know, immunotherapy into the backbone of chemotherapy for these patients was really exciting and really a big advancement in over three decades um, with regards to statistical significance. So it's, it's really exciting to, to, to be able to take care of patients during this time. Yeah, right. I mean, we had nothing for decades. We did have an evolution in standard of care, but it was an evolution that never improved survival. And then in rapid fire, we've gotten the PDL1 inhibitors, atezolizumab and dervalumab. We've gotten lurbinectidin um, to improve next line therapy. We've gotten trilocyclib to improve patient reported um, quality of life. And now we have other stuff, um, you know, for the first time, legitimate high promise of additional agents to improve quality of life and survival that really probably will have approval over the, the five-year time span from now. So I agree with you very much. It's an exciting time to be a small cell uh, lung cancer doctor. I look forward to better survival and better quality of life for our patients, and maybe even eventually the cure for some extensive stage disease. That ends our educational session focused on treatment advances and practical considerations in clinical decision-making in small cell lung cancer. I hope you found the activity informative and useful for your practice. I encourage you to download the supplemental practice aids for your reference, and I thank you very much for participating, and I thank you very much, Dr. Singhi, for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. This activity is accredited by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerreview.com forward slash DJB860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.